Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today I'm excited. Well, I'm I'm half as excited as I was before we started. But I got <laughs> a quarter. Got, a quarter. That's right, a quarter. I got my good friend Mark McKinnon here today. How you feeling today, brother? I'm feeling a lot better than my co-host Alex Wagner, who unfortunately, you know, despite all our, we have really insane protocols on our show. We even have like COVID experts on staff, but and we separate and we have pods and all of that, but. I got the bug a couple of weeks ago, and now our, our good friend Alex Wagner's got it, so she she won't be with us today. You know, I I was watching a, a CNN yesterday, and one of our healthcare experts came on, and she said it's only a matter of time before Joe Biden gets COVID, and people were like shocked, but that's the new re- reality and world we live in, is it not? It, it really is, and you know, I I think it's it's to some degree obviously a product of the relaxation of the mask mandates and what have you, but I barely know anybody at this point that hasn't gotten it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, in, in relaxation, I mean, I, Florida never COVID never was in Florida, apparently. <laughs> so, look, we, we start each one of our, our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And yours has been it would be an understatement to say storied in politics. But walk us through the arc of your career from your first campaigns in Texas to the work you do now. And why did you choose politics? Well, it's a pretty accidental journey in many ways. Uh, I, I, I ran away from home in high school uh, and hitchhiked to Nashville, Tennessee, where I uh, wanted to be a songwriter. And uh, I lived uh, a, a pretty well-known musician named Chris Christopherson was very generous to me and let me live in his apartment and kind of hang out at the studio. And I did that for several years. And then I found out about a, a, a songwriting contest in Texas that I went to in Kerrville, Texas, in 1975, I won that, and they invited me back in 1976. I discovered Austin in the middle of that and decided that uh, that's where I wanted to be. So I packed up and moved to Austin in the mid-70s. Banged around there for a while doing music uh, until some, you know, it's one of the rare occasions in my life where some wisdom kicked in. And I, I realized that on the trajectory that I was on, I was going to be the second act at the Pflugerville Holiday Inn when I was 50 years old. So I said, you know, you should probably think about plan B. And there was this university there, the University of Texas. So I was a little older, but I said, let's give it a shot. And I did. And then I, I, you know, I love to write. I've always loved to write. And uh, so I went to work for the student newspaper and and I always loved politics. So I started covering politics. I I began covering a a very popular uh, state senator there named Lloyd Doggett. And he ran for the United States. He's he's currently a congressman from Texas, has been forever, you know. Since you were uh, covering him in college. Yeah, yeah, I was covering him in the state Senate in the 80s. And um, but he's still in Congress doing a great job. But he ran for the Senate in 1984. And I went to work on that campaign as a volunteer. And then uh, then I got five bucks an hour doing data input. And then Paul Begala, who's a who's a friend and, and somebody I'm sure, you know, uh, said, hey, this guy worked on the Daily Texan. He should be doing press. And so the next thing I knew was doing press. We got our ass kicked in the fall. Of, that was the Reagan year. And that's where I discovered you can fail upwards in politics. And I got a job in the governor's office. And, th- and then I. Uh, uh, after I got out of politics, I, you know, I still loved it. Uh, I, I was I was tired of doing campaigns, tired of working in government, but I I was still fascinated by it. I was fascinated by campaigns and what happens largely behind the scenes because I just I had so much fun working in campaigns. I thought it was educational, informative, uh, entertaining, but so much of it the public never sees. And I thought, wow, it'd really be fantastic if there was a way to reveal some of what goes on behind the scenes. And that was the idea for this this show we're doing called The Circus, which is a 
we call it a real-time documentary because we, we do it every week instead of, you know, we don't do it six months or a year later. And that was part of the challenge of the show is it's just technically very challenging. And I pitched it for 10 years and, and luckily it didn't happen then because it couldn't. We needed technology to catch up. And then we just caught lightning in a bottle because we got greenlit, as they say, for the 2016 election, which, you know, what makes interesting uh, uh, TV, interesting characters, conflict and surprise. And we got all of that with Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Man, before we get before we get to the circus and it, it all kind of ties in together. I, I you were you were one of my guests who I would describe as more right of center. I guess. Do you think that politics, in particular, and Republican politics, are irreparably damaged by Donald Trump? And is it fair to say that the Republican Party is now Trump's party? Because you're somebody who comes from that Bush McCain type of Republican. Uh, is that is are those days gone? Are they behind us now? Is it a whole new party? God, I hope not. You know, as I, I like to quote Cory Booker and say I'm a prisoner of hope. Um, <laughs> and that's why I keep suiting up. You know, I, I mean, I hope that it's not permanently damaged. But boy, it's it, it, I, I, like the, in my in my prison uh, as a prisoner of hope, I feel like the cell is getting awfully dark uh, and there's not much light in, in the cell here. But um, yeah, because I, I, I just feel like the only way for the Republican Party to survive is to cut loose of Donald Trump. I mean, he has just in so many ways wrecked the party. And I had hoped that after the 2020 election that the Republican Party would move on. And for a couple of months there, it looked like maybe we might. Mitch McConnell kind of got out on his skis and then, you know, uh, but then, as, as you know, now he is as dominant in the Republican Party as he's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 almost certain that he'll run again, barring health or legal uh, consequences. See, I, think so, the, I think the other way. I think that if he has any legal consequences on the horizon, he's more likely to run. Than well, the other no way. question. Yeah, that keeps him out of trouble. You're exactly right. So, only if he's like put in handcuffs and put behind <laughs> bars, will he not run? Yes, you're right. So he'll he's almost certain to run. And, and you know, I mean, think about it. The reason he ran in the first place was not that he thought he was going to be president. He didn't. We know that. He just know, uh, yeah. he, he loves attention. And the best way to get attention is to run for president of the United States. He was going to get attention for a while, build his brand and then endorse Chris Christie. That was his plan. Um, so the notion that he would step off to the sidelines and just say, hand the baton to somebody like Ron DeSantis or something is insane. He's not going to do that. He, he feels he wants to get revenge. and He wants the attention. You're slightly older than I. My dad is. My dad will be 78 this year, and my dad says he hasn't seen anything like this save for uh, Richard Nixon. And he said the difference between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump is that Richard Nixon actually had shame, and Donald <laughs> Trump has none. Ha- have you seen anything like this? Or where, I mean, you're, you're a creature of, of a, a, the politics as, I, as am I, and throughout history, have we seen anything like Donald Trump? Nothing close. Nothing close. And, um, you know, I I keep banging my head on the wall. I, I help co-found something called No Labels. I, mm-hmm. you know, I used I worked for Ann Richards. I worked for Democrats in an earlier part of my life. I've always been just right around the center of American politics. And I and I feel like most of the people I talk to are, are somewhere in that category of, you know, kind of socially progressive, you know, a little bit more conservative fiscally and I feel like that represents a lot of America, but for reasons that we could talk for hours and hours about, Bakari, the, the country has just gotten so polarized, and it's just dominated by factions on the right and factions on the left. And it's it's very unfortunate because I don't think it represents the country at all, and I think it's really dangerous. And, you know, I mean, look no further than January 6th. 
you know, I think that that your where where you sit on the political spectrum is actually where a lot of black voters sit too, kind of center right. We that's a secret that nobody really wants. Yeah, to talk about. yeah that's really true. And I mean, South Carolina made Joe Biden, and you know that was a lot of conservative black women, right? Yeah, no question. But but how do you think? independence that that's a great segue I can tell you do tv how do you think independence and in, in these voters that came out to support president biden in 2020 view his performance thus far i mean he's had to tackle things that you're president of the united states nobody gives you a cheat sheet as to <laughs> what the next four i mean inflation and ukraine are at the top right now but how has he been doing i gave him a i gave them a c plus i think and they got mad at me so well, you you, you got to call him like you see him, and it's and it's it's you know, it's hard to, you know, listen. I mean, he's he's at a lower approval rating than Donald Trump was or is, and that that's a pretty low bar. Um, yes. Listen, I, I think that Joe Biden uh, uh, was the right guy for the moment. Who got? I mean, he may have been the only guy. Who, we look back, and he may have been the only. That was, I mean, that's that's no question. There's nobody else. That could have beat him, right? Yeah. So, and Ro, Ro Connor just said that recently. Ro Connor, yeah. they were talking about Ro Connor, are you running for president? And he was like, he, it was a self awareness that many people lost. He said that I'm not sure that someone of my background can win during this time period. That's right, and and that's that's a very honest appraisal. Um, uh, but but the problem is that I, I think that uh, people kind of misdiagnosed that Democrats did for sure, and sort of thought, oh my gosh, we you know we. We elected Joe Biden to be the next FDR, and that really wasn't why I was elected. People voted for him to, to not be Donald Trump, not to be the next FDR. And so Democratic kind of shot for the moon uh, on a lot of stuff, and um, uh, and then were were you know got their got wound up got the chain around their axle because of COVID resurgence, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and Joe Manchin. And, and Joe Man, Joe Manchin, yeah, very, no question about that. So all those things together, I mean, uh, you know, it's always tough for a party in power during the midterms, and you throw on top of it all the rest of this, and more than anything, inflation. Inflation is just it's a it's a presidency killer, right? I mean, it's it's it is it doesn't matter what else you've done, you can go out there and and, and by the way, Biden does have a lot of good stuff to talk about. I mean, the jobs numbers and and the economy on a lot of different fronts are are something that he can and should brag about, but it means nothing to people when they go to the grocery store and they're paying twice as much for groceries oh and twice as much for gas. It just it just kills everything. My dad called me. I tell this story all the time. He called me a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, and he was just pissed that the price of whiting had gone up. It was like five ninety nine a pound at the Piggly Wiggly in Denmark, where I'm from. <laughs> I mean, he was just he was livid, and you know yeah. it affects it affects people's pockets. How do you how do you think he's responded to the conflict? And I, is the is conflict the right word? I mean, or is it just war? How has he responded to Ukraine? Well, I think he's done really well, um, I and so I think well. that that was one of the things that people, uh, you know, that was one of the real. Uh, you know, assets that Joe Biden brought to the table was his foreign policy experience. And, and that's something he'd always focused on in the Senate and as vice president. And he had all those international relations. And I think that that's been paramount in the good work that he's done to keep the keep, keep this coalition together, the NATO coalition, which has done a really good job. But boy, they're I mean, they're facing a challenge, you know, like World War Two and uh, you know, something that is as evil as Adolf Hitler in, in Vladimir Putin. And, you know, the, we keep hoping for good news there. But I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen it today, but the latest thing is that, I don't know, somebody from a, a, 
one of the NATO countries met with Putin and just came away saying, God, you know, it looks worse than ever. I mean, this guy's just doubling down and it's going to get worse, which is hard to imagine. Well, my senator from South Carolina, you, you know, you can't say the quiet part out loud, but there may be some some uh, some truth that, you know, I know we're not in a regime change, but Vladimir Putin may have to leave before anything else changes. I'll just just leave it at that. I think I think that's right. And I think Joe Biden said the quiet part out loud, too. <laughs> Look, let's talk about the circus for people who haven't watched the circus. What is it? And I know you talked about it briefly, but and for 10 years. But why did you choose to do it? I mean, why, what what about the for, for those of us who've run for office? We know I had a documentary made about my campaign. But why did you choose to do it? What do people get out of it? Well, um, the thing that I realized when I look at this and what I've done on campaigns, what I did in journalism, what I did in songwriting is, is the, the, the glue that holds it all together is storytelling. And, and I just I love storytelling. And I think that uh, people don't appreciate how powerful the idea of narrative and storytelling is in politics. And it's it, it's 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 Cree. I mean, look at the difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. One was more experienced and prepared to be president than anybody who's probably ever run. It, and the ever. other guy knew how to tell a story. Guy. It didn't have to have any truth to it, but you, 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 he, he, made exactly you feel, right. he made you feel something. You may not have agreed with Donald Trump, but you knew what in the hell he was saying. right? Yes, you, yes. you understood the narrative that he was trying to to uh, to tell. So I, I, just, I just had been in a lot of campaigns. I love politics. I loved and I and I felt then and I still feel that it's a noble pursuit. And uh, and I wanted people to see what people like you have to go through when you run for office. You give up. There's a lot of sacrifice. And it's really interesting and, and, and it's entertaining. And as I said, they, often the candidates themselves are not even the most interesting people in the Correct. orbit. There's there are all these secondary characters, the campaign managers and the second cousin who's the press secretary or, you know, uh, just all these fascinating characters uh, in this universe of politics. And I thought if, if I could get behind the scenes and capture it in real time, and that's the key, that it wouldn't be something looking backwards on something where you knew the ending. I mean, the, the best part of entertaining is when you don't know the end of the story, right? And that's why I think our 2016 experiment worked really well, is that people just, you know, it was so interesting and nobody had any idea how that thing was going to end. And it surprised almost everybody, of course. Um, but my initial, uh, when I was early on in my uh, career in politics, Bakari, I, I had a mentor who said, I was, trying, I was leaving Texas or I wanted to, and I, I wanted to get more experience in politics. And somebody said, if you think you know anything about politics, go to Louisiana and get your Ph.D. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I, were, I, I will throw something in there for South Carolina, but Louisiana. Well, yeah. got <laughs> South Carolina is a close second, yes. close second. And I've spent a lot of time in both places. I'll tell you that. Um, so uh, I, I went to Louisiana and I had a, had a spectacular, my favorite year in politics, working for a guy named Buddy Romer, who ran against Edwin Edwards in 1987 and won in a shocking, surprising upset victory. But when I first thought of this show, uh, Louisiana was so interesting. The original um, uh, concept and name of the show was Smackdown in the Swamp. I was going to go do a governor's race in Louisiana with the same concept, which is get behind the scenes, do it in real time so that people could see how the campaign really worked uh, as it was happening, get in the cockpit. Well, as I said, it, it, I got some interest, but it got shelved. And then I just kept pitching it. And 12 or 13 years later, you know, uh, somebody called up and said, hey, remember that idea you had? Let's 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 maybe roll it out now. 
Listen, it is a fascinating show, and you're right. I mean, some of the creature, not creature, characters that are behind well, the scenes, too. some creatures some are too. creatures too. Swap some creatures. of the, <laughs> some of the. It's funny though. I mean, in 2016, I don't even know. You, you probably have more mics than people who worked on the campaign. I mean, Donald Trump didn't have a campaign team for the first four months he was out there. It was just like him and a, him and, and Michael Cohen, and oh, Jason no, Miller. Yeah, remember there were 18 <laughs> candidates out there in that Republican <laughs> primary, and we were trying to cover them all. No, that's crazy. You're you're uh, season seven seasons in now to the circus. What can we look forward to being covered in season seven? Well, one of the things I'll tell you also about the show is when we first got the go ahead to do it, they they gave us 26 episodes that first year in 2016. And my initial fear was, I mean, that's a lot of television. That's two seasons of a regular TV show. And I just thought, wow, there's just going to be weeks where there's not going to be enough material. Well, now we've done six more seasons than I thought we'd do. We were in our seventh season. We just went over 100 episodes. And not once in over 100 episodes have we ever not had enough material. So every week it's like, what are we going to cut? What are we going to cut? So um, I'm proud that of the show. It's it's really hard work. But I, I, the reason that it is now the most uh, highest rated uh, unscripted show in the history of, of Showtime, but it's because... Uh, of the timing more than anything, which is we're doing this at a time when the stakes have gotten so high, right? We've got January. People are thirsting for it. People are thirsting for it. We have COVID. You know, we have Ukraine. People are like waking up and saying, God, this stuff really matters. You know, we should start paying attention. Like my kids, you know, they're dialed in. They never used to be. So we just do this in a fast, fun and kind of furious way. Then, you know, have some cocktails and kick it around in a way that that I think that people, you know, if if they're not complete junkies, can just dial in on Sunday nights and, and kind of get up to speed. Uh, about what's going on. And, and uh, so we, we got uh, two more episodes uh, for the spring season, and then we'll be back in the fall to cover the midterms. So speaking of that, what races are you watching in 2022? And what do you think ultimately happens in Congress this fall? This is where I say footnote, thank God for Donald Trump's role in Democratic primaries, because y'all are going to, Republicans are going to have some weak candidates who Donald Trump selects to win primaries. Well, that's interesting you should say that because that's that's kind of what we're doing right now. Is th- this week, in fact, we, we talked a little bit about the House last week, and there's, it's hard to find any people who think there's there's really a shot in the hell for the Democrats to hold the House. In fact, the, the, the title of last week's episode was There Will Be Blood. It's only a question of how much. Uh, but the Democrats could theoretically hold the Senate. And so that's what we're focusing on this week. And that's where we're in Pennsylvania and Georgia the, uh, mm. this week, uh, maybe just Pennsylvania, uh, but, but maybe Georgia as well. And, you know, that this is a good example of, you know, Donald Trump weighing in heavily uh, in Pennsylvania just this week where he endorsed Emmett, uh, Mehmet Oz, who is the TV doctor, as you know, that which surprised and upset a lot of people because Dave McCormick uh, is running and he's a guy who is... Uh, uh, you know, a, a a Wall Street guy, kind of an establishment Republican, but had you know, but 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 MAGA base, uh, they've done a good job of running and attracting a lot of support from the MAGA base. And you and know, Oz is Oz is pro-choice and thinks that gun and which yeah, I agree, yeah, and, and, and he thinks that gun for, violence is a public health risk, which I yes. agree with both. Right, <laughs> and uh, so and that's his, and that's the problem for a lot of the MAGA supporters. So that it was a uh, it, it, not a total surprise because, uh, you know, Trump has known him for a long time and he had the support of Melania Trump and Sean Hannity. And he's a TV guy. That's what Trump loves. It's like he's done TV. So he's, you know, he's great and, and people love him. And that's why I'm endorsing him, which uh, but I think it's really split the uh, the coalition. 
Um, and, you know, it's I, I think McCormick's still probably the odds on favorite there. But but it's just an example where, uh, you know, Trump is creating kind of havoc and problems for the Republican Party. They really need to put him in the rearview mirror than, than keeping him on the windshield. And then same thing in Georgia, where he's endorsed Herschel Walker. Uh, and so. Uh, listen, it's going to be a, the, the, it's, it's not a good year for Democrats, no question. But but because of largely because of Donald Trump's meddling in these primaries, they may nominate candidates that are not going to be general, great general election candidates. Let me I mean, this isn't the first time Republicans have done it, though. I mean, you look at Todd Aiken um, sure. before in Missouri and what's sure. the lady's name who wasn't a witch? I am no. not a witch. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yes. so, yeah. That and, was the uh, same cycle. Let me ask you a question, though, from your you do a political show. And you have this journalistic background. How do you talk about what is an obvious like capacity issue of Herschel Walker? Like people want to talk about the ability of of Joe Biden to serve because of his age. How do we talk about Herschel Walker and what appears to be an inability to completely grasp the issues and ideals. I'm trying to be as sensitive as possible. Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I think we're at a place where there are a lot of voters that don't really care. Uh, I mean, I think there are enough people in Georgia just say, I like him. I think he's a decent guy. And I think generally he he's, he believes what I do. Or if he if he doesn't, he's going to do what he's told to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think he's just going to be a creature of Donald Trump and that MAGA base. And basically, you know, listen, I mean, he came out and talked about evolution. He didn't believe in evolution because they're still apes. <laughs> That's, and, and that COVID could be cured by a mist. And, you know, so they're keeping him on a very short leash. As very, he didn't even show up to his debate recently. Didn't even go I mean, to the debate. So yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the campaign that they're going to run. But he could win. He could and there's win. no question. We just recently saw uh, Kentonji Brown-Jackson um, win in, in what is an historic moment. One I don't think we truly appreciate just yet because of so much going on. We hear a lot of talk about the legitimacy of the court. Have we reached a point where Americans view the Supreme Court as just as partisan and political as the other two branches of government? Oh, I think more so, uh, Bakari. And, and I think it's if you want to if you want to, uh, you know, a, a, a magnifying glass into the partisanship of American politics, just look at these Supreme Court nominations and what happens. And, you know, I, I think I think there's a reason for that. And that is because the consequences are so the stakes are so high at the Supreme Court. And and uh, but uh, but it's a sad state of affairs when you have, for example, in the case of uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson, you know, a, an extraordinarily qualified woman who had the support of 21 Republican senators when she was up for other judgeships, right? And then they all head for the exits uh, as soon as it gets really political at the Supreme Court level. Uh, and there's no justification for it other than just naked politics. And it's, it's a, it, it, you know, we used to think that the Supreme Court was sort of beyond that and above it, uh, but clearly it's not. How do you think the circus differs from other political shows? And how do you think your coverage of Washington moves away from the horse race coverage, which I hate, that dominates Washington journalism and actually covers what American voices care about or matter? Well, like I said, we, we try uh, uh, and do things differently than anybody else does. And, and we do a very documentary presentation. We get behind the scenes and talk to people that most people that, you know, that don't often talk, that you don't often hear from. We do what we call bottle episodes where we do deep dives on particular issues like energy or particular states like Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, it's just the approach is to 
you know, to get really, uh, we have a, a ton of people to work on the shows, like 80 people to work on, which is mm. a lot. And we have big cameras and a lot, big crews. And so it looks really good and it sounds really good. Uh, and we just produce it in a way that I think makes it compelling for viewers to look at politics from a little different angle and try and offer some insights that you don't get just watching the normal cable TV news. And hopefully an appreciation for it. And as I said, even though it's called The Circus, I still believe in the noble pursuit of politics. <laughs> how can people watch The Circus? When? How? Give them all those details. Yeah, it's on at uh, 8 o'clock on Sunday nights on Showtime. And uh, you can watch all 100 episodes if you just pay $10 for the app. And you can go back and watch any episode you want to. And uh, which is interesting to go back, by the way, and watch some of those like episodes from 2016. And then, yeah, I can imagine. oh, I see it coming. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. This is a blessing and a treat. And one day we got to we got to grab grab a drink together. I'd like to as do we it in, to in South Carolina. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. And please give Alex my best, man. Uh, you got gotcha. you. I appreciate what missed. you do, man. For sure. Have a good one. See ya.